0: His heart beats. His blood begins to flow. Waking up what was dead a moment ago. His heart beats. Now everything is changed. Because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins. And his heart beats His heart beats, he breathes in, his living lungs expand. The heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again. He breathes out, he is word and flesh once more. The Lamb of God slain for us is a lion ready to roar. And his heart beats, he rises glorified in flesh. Clothed in immortality, the firstborn from the dead, he rises. His work's already done, so he's resting as he rises to reclaim the bride he's won. And his heart beats. He will never die again. I know that death no longer has dominion over him. So my heart beats with the rhythm of the saints, as I look for the seeds the king has sown to burst up from their graves, I know, I know, he took one breath and put death to death. Where is your sting, O grave? How great is your defeat? I know, I know, he took one breath And put death to death. Where is your sting, O grave? How great is your defeat. How great is his victory. Amen. Those words by Andrew Peterson are powerfully encouraging and powerfully true this morning. As true as they have been since Jesus' heart began to beat again as it did. This most wonderful and desperately needed miracle really happened. 2,000 years ago, and it changed everything. All the hopes and fears of all the years were met in him, not just the night he was born, but the morning he rose from the dead. We've been thinking about Jesus as the man of sorrows for several weeks now, and he indeed is the man of sorrows who entered into our sin and our suffering and our pain and our sorrow, and became the man of sorrows. He emptied himself, was acquainted with grief. He was tempted by sin. He was despised and rejected and smitten by God and afflicted. And Jesus indeed is the man of sorrows. His incarnation made him, although rich, poor, so that in him, through his poverty, we might become rich. Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered, not at a detached distance from us, but with us and for us in our sorrow, in our pain, and in this cursed world. And Jesus' death was the ultimate display of his sorrow. Although being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the man of sorrows, and this world is filled with sorrow. I know mine is, I know yours are, and we need to know that Jesus understands. And Jesus doesn't save us from a distance, but he rolls his sleeves up, and he enters into our pain and our sorrow and our suffering, and he gets his hands dirty and even bloody, saving us. Jesus is the man of sorrows. But this morning, we remember that great morning where Jesus rose from the dead and becomes not just the one who can relate to our sorrows, but the ones who can pull us out of those sorrows. The one who is also the man of joy. Jesus rose from the dead. He wasn't the first person to ever rise from the dead, but he was the first person to rise from the dead, never to die again. He is the man of sorrows. And that is what we are remembering today. Would you please open your Bibles to John chapter 16. We have a wonderful passage where Jesus is telling his disciples he's going to die and he's going to leave them, but he doesn't want them to ever start down the road of despair because he wants them to have joy Even before the resurrection, because he's so sure he will rise from the dead and conquer sin and death. John 16 has an amazing passage that gives us great hope and joy in the midst of the sorrow of life. You know, I I just need to point out Dave and Karen Coons and their family are up there, They, they haven't been there for over a year. And they have been going through a battle with cancer for a long time now with the most amazing courage and faith and joy in the midst of great suffering. I've always said, I don't need a book of illustrations on my shelf as a pastor at Grace. I've I've got hundreds of them. Sitting in front of me, and certainly we have an amazing illustration of today's message. Sitting up there with a faithful family, walking in faith and joy in the midst of tremendous suffering. It's so good to see you, dear friends. We love you. We love you. Well, here's what Jesus wants us to hear this morning, just as much as he wanted his disciples to hear these words. John chapter 16. Lord, help us now as we go to your word to be encouraged by it, just as the disciples were to be encouraged by it. No differently, Lord. We need to hear these words from Jesus because they're true and they couldn't be more meaningful. And so we pray that you would change us, encourage us, bless us for those watching uh, online, for those sitting here who've never tasted resurrection life, I pray this would be the morning, that that becomes a reality, not just an idea. Lord, I pray we would all be powerfully encouraged to live victoriously in light of the fact that Jesus conquered all our greatest enemies. And so we pray that you'd use this time in Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 16, beginning at verse 16. Jesus says a little and a little while and you will see me no more no longer and again a little while and you will see me so some of the disciples said to one another what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I'm going to the father so they were saying what does he mean by a little while We do not know what he's talking about. But Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you'll not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you are will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you will have sorrow now. But I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy From you. Jesus is the man of sorrows, but Jesus is the man of joy. And he is telling his disciples, although it's not clear to them now how long and what this little while means and why their sorrow will turn to joy, but they will know soon enough. In three days, their sorrow will turn to joy. Their despair and their anguish and their fear will turn to joy and hope and confidence so that they become disciples of Jesus for the rest of their lives until they give their lives, making his name known in a world that desperately needs to know his name. Jesus is telling his disciples that his resurrection from the dead is going to change everything. And the fact is, believers celebrating all over the world today, the resurrection of Jesus, we serve a risen Savior. He's not just a great moral teacher. Jesus is not just a sage who shows us how to live virtuously. No, Jesus gave his life so that we could have life abundant and eternal. And he rose from the dead and conquered our greatest enemies, our own sin. And the judgment that has incurred, and the wrath of God that comes with that, and hell that we have to pay for our sin—that a rebellion against God has brought—and the reality and the power of the resurrection is the life-changing, radical truth of the Christian faith at the heart of our faith. Jesus told them this would happen. The prophets pr- prepared them for millennia that this would come about, and the. Resurrection of Jesus is not just a doctrine we have to believe. It's a power to be trusted. It's a Savior who has conquered on our behalf. It's a power to be experienced on a daily basis. It's Christ's victory over death. It's the Father's stamp of approval on all Jesus said and did. It vindicated who he was and all his work on our behalf. It showed that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father and a full atonement had been paid. And then Jesus ascended in his bodily resurrected state and we're told he will return in the same way we saw him go. Jesus will be now human forever, resurrected forever, possessing the eternal life that we will possess because of our union with him by faith in him. And Jesus has done everything we need now. There's nothing we need to add. We don't need to claw around frantically trying to establish an identity. Find a purpose, find a meaning, find hope, find confidence in a world that is so distraught and despairing and filled with trouble. We have it in Christ The Bible says if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus said it's finished and he meant it. He's done it. And when you're identified with him through repentance and faith, everything changes for you forever. But there are some things we need to learn from this passage from Jesus this morning. What does he tell us? He said he tells us first one sorrow is temporary. Sorrow's temporary, he says, in a little while. And you're thinking, a little while? What's this little while he's talking about? From God's perspective, what can seem like a very long time to us from his perspective is just a little while. Specifically in this passage, the little while in verse 16 is referring to the three days they'll have to wait as they cower in a corner, fearing for their lives, assuming they will go to the same end Jesus did. And all but one of the apostles did exactly that through martyrdom. But Jesus says, in a little while, your sorrow will turn to joy. And they're trying to figure out what this means. But he says, in a little while, for them just three days, their hopes had been crushed. They feared for their lives. And here, like Paul, who's following in Jesus' teaching, he says, the suffering you're going through may seem so long And difficult and like you can't endure it. But please know from God's perspective in light of what he is doing and has done and will do in Christ. It's a slight momentary affliction. It's just slight and momentary. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. And you want to say Paul. But this suffering feels so deeply. He knows that. Paul suffered. And Jesus was the man of sorrows. They're not speaking from some glib perspective that doesn't appreciate what we're going through. But it's temporary. But we also need to realize it's powerful. Sorrow is powerful in this life because it has a solution in Jesus doesn't mean we minimize it or trivialize it or rush through the difficulty of it to the solution. No, for the Christian, we will weep and we will lament life in a fallen and cursed world that's filled with pain. And the Bible even teaches that those who are Christians, those who have the spirit in them will groan inwardly at a deeper level than those who don't. You see, because we Christians, we don't have the ability to try to explain away suffering try to minimize it, to try to just make it a natural part of the evolutionary process or yin and yang and act like there isn't evil. We know there is. We know there's sorrow. We know there's suffering and we know it's not the way it's supposed to be and we know it's not the way it will be. And so we don't try to minimize it. We realize how powerful it is. And we realize... That the world even rejoices over things that are causing this sorrow. That's what Jesus says, doesn't he? He says, it's a little while and you will weep and you'll lament, but the world will rejoice. See, this is one of the ways we are so and called to be so radically different than the world. Those who aren't walking according to God's ways, those who aren't depending on Jesus, may not even realize it but they were, are walking the path to death. If you're not walking the path to life in Christ this morning, the Bible says you're on a path to death. The Bible says that you have sinned and rebelled against God and you need forgiveness. And he loves to forgive broken and rebellious sinners. And he does everything we need for him to do so we may be forgiven and declared righteous because of Jesus. Jesus. The world rejoices over the appearing defeat of Christ and the appearing joy found in darkness. And so the Christian view is realistic. That's one of the things I love most about the Bible is how realistic it is, how true it is. But the Bible says we're able to rejoice in the midst of the groaning and and, and we can have groaning on the way to glory. That our hope and our joy should never be shallow It should never prevent us from appreciating the uh, difficulty of life and weeping with those who weep. And I I believe that about half the battle in the Christian life is knowing it's a battle. Knowing that we're in a war against principalities and powers in high places and powers of darkness. But what we need to know is that in Christ's resurrection we have hope for eternity and hope for today. Hope for right now. We realize this, I just could not have been more thankful and helped by our time of sung worship this morning. Thank you Walt, thank you amazing musicians, thank you Kenny and Mindy. I am so grateful for what we were helped with this morning musically. Musically and lyrically coming together beautifully, I'm so grateful. Because what it was giving us the entire time was a picture of our future hope and the resurrection we will share in because of Jesus' resurrection. But it was making sure the whole time we were translating it into right now. Not just a future hope, but a very present hope. Did did you hear what we, we were saying? I was dead in the grave. I was covered in sin and shame. I heard mercy call my name. He rolled the stone away. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Not just the judgment seat. I don't just have a solution for eternity. I have a solution for today and for tomorrow with all its uncertainties. I have a solution for tomorrow. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, every fear is gone. I know he holds my life, my future in his hand. I'm alive because he lives. And we're able to sing that together with a common hope and a common joy that comes from that hope. And so we, as, as we go through life together, through life's burdens and sorrows and miseries and suffering, we do it together and we do it with a common hope and a common joy, translating our eternal hope into our hope for today. The disciples had an excruciating three days. And Jesus conquered sin when he rose from the grave. He delivered the decisive blow in the battle against those ultimate enemies. But the battle's not over, is it? They had to wait three days for the resurrection. We're still waiting for the consummation. The day when the resurrection realities that were birthed on Sunday morning of Easter will come into final completion. And we look to that day, and we long for that day, realizing that in many ways, we are still living in Saturday like they had to. They had to wait, and we're waiting for the consummation. The battle still rages, doesn't it? Greg Sitters, a pastor in Maine, wrote a powerful picture of what I'm talking about where he contrasts and compares this relationship between Jesus and the apostles and his resurrection. And now, our relationship of trying to apply with Jesus this resurrection reality, living in the Saturday, waiting for the final realization. Listen to what Greg Sitter says. He says, Friday is when your dreams died. Sunday is when God will do more than you could have dreamed. Saturday... Is the seeming eternity in between. On Friday, you miscarried. On Sunday, the child who meets you at the gate will call you mom. But on Saturday, you're selling the crib. On Friday, the test came back positive. On Sunday, Cancer will be extinct. But on Saturday, clumps of hair clog the shower drain. On Friday, you were served divorce papers. On Sunday, you'll be the bride at a wedding feast. But on Saturday, you sleep alone in an empty house after he takes the kids for the weekend. On Friday, you went out of business. On Sunday, your shop will be full of those who treasure what your hands have made. But on Saturday, you're punching a time clock to climb out of debt. On Friday, your child was arrested. On Sunday, he'll beat what you've always known he had the potential to be. On Saturday, you look through the glass at vacant eyes, press your hand against the barrier and whisper into the phone, I love you. On Friday, you lost your home. On Sunday, you'll be handed the keys to a mansion. But on Saturday, you're concealing your grief as you try to make an apartment feel like a home for your kids. On Friday, your sin... Was exposed. On Sunday, the eyes of God will look at you and see nothing but righteousness. On Saturday, you wear a scarlet letter like a tattoo. On Friday, she died. On Sunday, you'll see her face, hear her laughter, and feel her touch. But on Saturday, you bring flowers to the graveyard and come home to darkness. Saturday feels like forever, but it's not. Sunday is forever. And that's the truth we're affirming today, that the man of sorrows understands the difficulty. Whatever the details may be in this life, he understands the difficulty, but Satan hasn't given up yet. You know, I was never a wrestler, and I never fought MMA. I often wish I had. I just think there's something so horrible and good about it at the same time. But, but I, I'm always fascinated by people who know the sport of wrestling or MMA fighting. And there are, certain, you know, there are certain things you can survive when you're in a wrestling match, but everybody who really understands wrestling knows there are certain moves that if you are gotten by that move, you're done. Just tap out. Don't even try to wait. Don't try to wait it out. You're not going to survive like a double arm bar, I'm told. It's either you tap out or your shoulder's dislocated or your arm breaks. Your choice. One of the most powerful movies I've ever seen, The Warrior, is is about two, two fighters. And and their brothers actually, and they fight. And the, and the brother, the older brother, gets the younger brother in a move that they all know is going to break his arm if he doesn't tap out. And the brother doesn't tap out. He's just so desperate to win. So desperate, so at the end of his rope, if he doesn't win, that he allows his arm to be broken, knowing he doesn't stand a chance. That's what Satan's like that Jesus got him in a death lock, broke his neck, and he's still trying to fight. And he's still getting casualties in the process when we know how it's going to end. Saturday can feel like forever because the battle still rages, but Sunday's forever, not Saturday. And because Jesus rose from the dead, our sorrow turns to joy, and our groaning is grateful, and our joy is brokenhearted, and our hope is longing hope, but it's joy, and it's it's hope, and it's gratitude. Joy is a powerful theme in the Bible. I want to be known as someone who's joyful. who who knows the joy of God. Christians, we need to be known for being joyful people. Have you ever cried reading a dictionary? I actually have quite a few times. I know, I'm a weirdo. Never Webster, but theological dictionaries. I have wept many times. I weep at just beautifully expressed theology. And when it's beautifully expressed theology that's life-changing truth, I'm gonna read a dictionary definition for you. How's that? I trust you. to to really appreciate this. Listen to this definition of joy from the New Bible Dictionary. Get out your hanky. Joy is an essential ingredient of all true Christianity. It was a conspicuous feature of Hebrew religion at its best. The reading of a new edition of the law led to great rejoicing at the time of Ezra, who summed up the scene by saying, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The book of Psalms rings with the joy of worship, especially that associated with great Jewish festivals in the temple at Jerusalem. The New Testament is the most buoyant, exhilarating, and joyful book in the world. It contains a variety of words for joy, which occur a total of 326 times. For example, there's an exultant joy. Optimism is the mood of faith. Paul can exalt in God on account of the death of Christ. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus pronounces happy those who display certain characteristic. The most common root for joy in the New Testament is that which expresses, however, inward joy. The message of the whole New Testament is good news of great joy for all people. Every New Testament writer has something to say about joy in one or more of its varieties. Luke's gospel is par excellence, which we we're about to start preaching through. Yes, here we go. Luke's gospel is par excellence, the gospel of joy. While Paul's letter to the Philippians written through it was from prison, written though it was from prison, is a letter of joy. In John's letters, fullness of joy is stressed. 1 Peter touches, uh, teaches about joy and suffering. The joy of practical religion is shown in the letter of James. The joy of redeem, the redeemed is found in Revelation. The basis of Christian joy lies in the main theological doctrines of the faith. The fatherhood of God and the forgiveness of sins, the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection of Christ, and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Christians rejoice because God is their heavenly father. Who forgives the penitent because God sent his son into the world for the salvation of all who have faith. Because Jesus Christ not only died, but was raised again from the dead. And because joy is one of the, um, the ninefold fruits of the spirit. Such are the firm theological foundations of Christian joy. Joy finds, exp- finds expression in a new attitude to life as a whole and revitalized worship. Every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Christ, and as such, should have about it the joy of Easter. Oh, it's resurrection morning is a special reality, but this is so true, isn't it? it? The joy of resurrection Sunday should not be limited to this day, but but translated into every day of our lives, especially when God's people gather. Yet joy is not confined to the first day of the week. It affects the daily life and the work of the Christian. The whole of life is to be spent in joyful service of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we know that even though we suffer in this life, as Jesus said, that we will be sorrowful, we will weep, we will lament, but we're able to rejoice in the midst of all of it. Why? Because Jesus tells us this, this sorrow is productive. It's temporary. It's temporary. But it's also productive, isn't it? It's productive like the, the suffering of a woman giving birth, he says. When a woman, hours come, verse 21, when she's giving birth, her hours come, she has sorrow. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. I have never given birth. I guess I didn't need to say that. But I've never given birth. Maybe today you do. Never, um, never, never have I given birth. However, however, I am told on good authority, it's very painful. Yes, pain that no man could ever even imagine, I'm told. But, but, but I've never heard a mother say, man, 42 hours of labor, the most horrific pain I've ever experienced. And if I had it to do over, no way. Baby's going back. No, I've never heard a mother say that. It's worth it. Not because it lacks pain, but because it's so wonderfully productive. A baby is born. And Paul picks up on this in his letter to the Romans. And he agrees with Jesus here and says, all the groanings of this present age are birth pangs, which gives us a perspective on the present age. So what we find here, as I've heard it said, that the only happy floor in a hospital is the maternity ward. And it's not because it lacks pain, but because the pain is so wonderfully productive. It's birth pangs. That's what we're feeling. And it's not permanent. Sorrow is not permanent. That's what Jesus says. I, I'm, sorrow's not permanent, but joy is Joy is what's permanent. Do you hear what he says in verse 20, 22? You You've also have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. There is nothing that can rob you of joy when we're trusting in the joy giver, the source of our joy. And that's our, our ultimate point here, our ultimate application, our ultimate conclusion. Trust in the power of the empty tomb. Trust in the Savior who walked out of that tomb. He fought the battle for you. He overcame the suffering and the sorrow for us. And although we have sorrow now, Jesus tells us to take heart because he's overcome the world. And we're to trust in Jesus. And so we need to have hearts of trust. And the great news is we have a trustworthy Savior, a trustworthy object of our trust. It's one thing to have a lot of trust in a faulty object, but we have a trustworthy Savior, and so we're able to have trusting hearts. And as our trust in Him grows, so will our joy. So even when life is brutally difficult, We can have joy as the Bible commands us to be sorrowful but always rejoicing. Listen to an old pastor from a century ago. Trust is an indispensable element of a happy life. A suspicious, distrustful soul is like one walking in a fog, chilling, perplexing, distorting. One of a trustful nature who has no one to trust is like a lonely traveler, hungry and homeless. So do you see, we need to have trusting hearts, but we're able to have trusting hearts because we have someone trustworthy who conquered even death for us. Listen to Tony Rinky; beautiful reflection on this idea. To be a trusting person, but to have no trustworthy object to trust in results in tragic lostness. And to, no, and to no one who's fully trustworthy, but to not trust him is a chilling tragedy of its own. And yet we experience it in our daily Christian lives. How often do we walk in the chilling and perplexing fog of unbelief? Disillusionment and disappointment will always strike where genuine trust in God grows thin. And that's why, we tr- when, that's why when trust is missing, joy will go missing. There can be no joy in God when there is no trust in God. And no confidence in his all-sufficiency. And this is why we all feel the inner battle for joy, because we face a daily battle for faith. Our hearts are prone to trust in self, in money, in occupations, in a spouse, in health, in our 401Ks. <laughs> and other worldly securities or circumstances. And when our faith wanes and we no longer trust God, we're set up for a disastrous fall into spiritual dehydration. Unbelief in the Christian life is serious business. Joy will not grow where faith is absent. But listen to what Paul says. We work with you for our joy. For you stand firm in your faith. See, Paul wants them to have joy, so so what does he encourage them to? Faith. The the primary thing we pursue is not not joy, but the faith that produces joy. Until we have our confidence in God settled, what we call faith, our joy in God will remain elusive. Elusive. Unbelief evaporates joy. And very often the pathway to renewed joy in God begins when we evaluate the false securities of our own lives and honestly assess whether we're trusting in our all-sufficient and all-trustworthy Christ for our eternal security and our daily needs. Is that great? And so we are after what? Knowing Christ and trust in him. And then we will find joy. If we want joy, and I do, We find it in Jesus, increasing trust in him. That's what our lives are about. Presenting everyone mature in Christ then as our ministry goal is something that is all about faith in Jesus. Not some feeling we manufacture by trying to look on the bright side, but no, resting in Jesus. Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation but take heart, I have overcome the world. Listen in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I had heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy. Worthy and true. I began with quoting Andrew Peterson. Let me close with quoting Andrew Peterson. Come, broken and weary. Come, battered and bruised. My Jesus makes all things new. Come, lost and abandoned. Come, blown by the wind. He'll bring you back home again. Rise up, oh you sleeper. Awake, the light of the dawn is upon you. He makes all things new. Come frozen with shame. Come burning with guilt. My Jesus, he loves you still. So rise up, O oh, you sleeper. Awake, the light of the dawn is upon you. Rise up, O oh, sleeper. Awake, he makes all things new. The world was good. The world is fallen. The world will be redeemed. So hold on to that promise. The stories are true, that Jesus makes all things new. Rise up, O sleeper, awake. He makes all things new. Amen.